Passing Dimes is proud to welcome a new partner to the show, Momentum Pro Camps. Momentum Pro Camps runs volleyball camps across Ontario, bringing professional athletes, coaches, and resources to communities, clubs, and partners. Momentum's mission is to inspire and develop high performers for life, and they're doing just that. Unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Momentum has suspended all programming until permitted by local public health recommendations. However, they have developed incredible future programming for athletes to benefit from and are excited to share it with all of you when we can play again. Follow us on social media at Momentum Pro Camps for updates and details on future programs or email us at contact at MomentumProCamps.com. Stay excellent, friends. Hello, friends. Quick announcement before this week's show. Correction to the Lexi Paula show. We stated that Lexi was the only Windsor Lancer to play professionally. Thanks to friend of the show, Lyndon, we now know that Caitlin Morrissey, now Mollard, played at Windsor for five years, won an OUA championship, and went on to play professionally in Europe. Thanks again, Lyndon, and thanks to everyone for listening. Now on with the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He's already given us the biggest compliment ever where, you know, we both agreed you haven't quite made it until you're on a Passing Dimes episode. So maybe a little too late to give this guy a call, but finally got him confirmed. So today's guest played at Thompson Rivers. He's also coached at Thompson Rivers at Lethbridge College, UBC, Okanagan, and he's also been a part of the Volleyball Canada Youth Program, and he's currently the head coach of the UBC men. Please welcome to the show, Mike Hawkins. Mike, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, Josh, thanks for having me. Now, a lot of people in our community are going to recognize your name right away and all the stuff you've achieved. But for the listeners who aren't familiar, I kind of wanted to set the scene of where you started. So you being an Alberta guy, was volleyball a sport for you at an early age? Were you playing other sports and got into it later? Like, what's what's your story and why why volleyball is your main thing that you kind of picked to follow and pursue eventually as a, as a player and now a career as a coach? Yeah, I would say I had a pretty <laughs> unimpressive playing career. Like I think I remember reading one of your Volleyball Canada press releases, and I think you said something similar where, you know, it wasn't the most impressive playing career, so then you got into coaching, you know, right away. And I'd say I followed a pretty similar path. Uh, I was one of those kids that played everything growing up. Uh, soccer was actually my, my number one sport for a long time. Uh, and then just got into volleyball in – junior high, high school, and kind of had to make the decision the summer between grade 10 and grade 11, I think, to to give up soccer. So I, I played it at a relatively high level, um, but just knew that you know volleyball was going to be something that I could pursue a little bit more seriously. I, you know, I'd say I just happened to be pretty decent at it. And uh, yeah, I just started committing my time a little bit more, you know, by grade nine and through high school. It's kind of what I did high school and, and club volleyball year round. Yeah, you definitely had a leg up on me as a guy who played in Canada West, which is like the the division for a long time. So I'm curious, when did post-secondary become an option? Like, were you recruited at a club? Were you the one kind of calling and contacting coaches? Like, how did it come together that you were going to be a TRU guy? Yeah, it's funny. The <laughs> Even though I feel like I'm not that far removed from my playing career, my recruiting process was so different than you know what we go through with with high school age kids now. Uh, so I was connected. So I actually went to Mount Royal College. It was college at the time, straight out of high school, and uh, was connected with Sean Sky through one of my club coaches. So Adam Boyd, he had played with or played for Sean Sky a couple of years prior. Uh, so it was just a, a club tournament, and we kind of had a really informal 
contact and connection and then was invited out to a, a joint ID camp with University of Calgary and, and Mount Royal College at the time. Uh, so then went to that, played pretty well, played well enough that Sky wanted to keep me around. So he just offered me a, a spot on the roster. So then, uh, yeah, I went to Mount Royal after high school uh, and played on, honestly, what, what to me has to have been one of the most talented collegiate teams on record. Uh, we had 11 first years in that year, which seems insane. And I think Sky was insane for doing that. Uh, but we ended up winning a CCAA championship and you know, Jay Blankenau and Jason DeRocco were, were on that team. And now those guys are perennial A-team guys. So so that was my first step out of high school. And it was just kind of, a, you know, had a connection to Mount Royal. You know, the coach saw me play a couple times at a few, you know, Volleyball Alberta tournaments and then was invited out to an ID camp. Amazing. This is just evidence that we need an intern because I didn't do my research here. That That's amazing. And, and a name that I haven't actually met, Sean, but working at the OVA with the uh, Shane White, he's a big fan of Sean. So what can you just tell us about the way he runs his program, like what he does technically, tactically as a coach? Like it seems like he does well no matter who the roster is. And then, yeah, you give him a roster with you guys. And like you said, uh, Blankano and like that level of crew, of course, they're going to compete for a national championship. So what what does he do so well that he's just so consistent at it? Yeah, I think he he does a really good job. And, you know, I was only coached by him for one year, but I was fortunate enough to coach with him with the youth team a couple summers ago. Uh, and just technically, he's just really sound. Like, he's just a really good technical coach. Uh, he was a setter, so, you know, I feel he works with setters quite well. Like, obviously, he had, had Jay, and Jay ended up being all right. But he's good, and he, you know, at the time... I think he was known a little bit more as a fiery guy. And I'm sure, sure, you know, if you were to ask Shane some stories about his time with Sean, he would probably mention some of the fiery stories. But uh, I caught Sean, I think, just as he was starting his family. He, he's got some, you know, a little bit bigger of a family now. But he, uh, yeah, he was a good motivator. He was intense. He was hyper, hyper competitive. Uh, and I think we just had a lot of personalities that, you know, his – style really resonated with our group. So even though, you know, we had 11 first years, a lot of the guys that were on our team were, you know, provincial team level guys, a handful of them played, you know, junior national team or eventually like senior B, senior A. I think honestly in our entire roster, I think there were only two athletes that didn't go on to have, you know, CIS or U sports careers. And most of them ended up being starters. Like a lot of those guys ended up playing for the university of calgary when they won their national championship uh so like alan meek was on that team uh pat lenore who's a good buddy of mine he was on that team uh jace richards who now coaches with mount royal uh kind of like a long list of guys who you know we we all came in i think we knew that it was going to be a really unique team in the sense that we were so young but really talented and i think sky was just the perfect coach for that because technically you know I, i think we could all you know, talk about it afterwards, how we improved technically so, so much under his tutelage, but then just like his competitive spirit, I think really allowed us to end up being a, a national championship team. Nice. And just a quick follow-up when we had Brock Davidek on the show, we were just talking about like people my age and his age. Like I think there was an era in Canada West where it wasn't uncommon to play a couple years in the CCAA and then play university. I'm, I'm curious with you being an athlete who followed that path, but now as a, as a coach recruiting athletes, 
it doesn't seem that common. And I'm wondering just because Canada West has maybe expanded, because like you said, Mount Royal is now competing at a U-sports level. But what do you think the big difference is or what maybe was appealing to you to go play Mount Royal before going to TRU? Like why are why is that era of playing college before university not as popular as maybe it was during, you know, the Mount Royal kind of peak? And, and you said like kind of filtering into Calgary and Alberta kind of had a thing going with some, some colleges filtering in. It just seemed like when Can West was really pumping, like it wasn't unusual for like a Dallas Sunius or Brock Davidock to play college before uh, university, right? Yeah, I think it was, you know, kind of exactly as you had mentioned there. You know, we've just added more teams in the Canada West over the last decade plus, you know, with Mount Royal, McEwen, uh, you know, UBC Okanagan and, you know, TRU obviously a little bit before that. But I think because there's just more teams, uh, you know, and those rosters need to get filled, you know, those, you know, good but not like national team level guys in my day would have just gone and played college and because they would have been talented athletes eventually would have moved on. And, you know, as exactly like you alluded to, I think each team kind of had their own feeder college, like Mount Royal kind of fed into Calgary, Red Deer and Nate kind of filled into U of A. And I think everyone kind of had that around Western Canada a little bit, but I think just with the addition of teams, you know, those rosters just need to get filled with talented athletes. Um, so now, you know, I, I think that the ACAC and the, the PAC West have still remained quite competitive because uh, I think there's just, you know, enough talented athletes. But for the most part, if you're if you're someone who, you know, coaches deem to have kind of promising talents, then typically you'll, you'll just go straight to university now. Whereas like when, when I played, you had to have been, you know, Graham Vigrass <laughs> going straight from high school to, to Calgary. Nice. So when, when you make the switch, um, was Pat the coach at TRU? Like when you made the jump, was there any conversations with coach before you joined the squad or what was it like for you transferring to going, like you said, going from college to university, how was the level different? Did you kind of know what you're getting into? Was, was there a little bit of a jump at that time? Yeah. So that's a, another funny story. And, and even like, I would say my volleyball career, like my entire path, I've just been, you know, the guy with really good timing and I've made apparently like half decent impressions and, and made the most out of my opportunities. So after Mount Royal, uh, so we won a national championship and I knew that Jay was going to remain, uh, at Mount Royal. And like, I was a competitive guy. And I think at the start of the year we were, I don't want to say relatively close. He was obviously more talented than me, but, um, he started the entire year, won a national championship, made the junior national team. Uh, so at the time, my former club coach, he was taking over the job at Lethbridge College. So Ian Bennett. Uh, so he took the job. So I actually went to Lethbridge for a couple of years prior to going to, uh, to TRU. But my recruitment process to TRU was, again, one of those things, just really good timing and a good impression. So my, one of my teammates at Lethbridge was being recruited by Pat. Uh, he was a middle, you know, he ended up going and playing at a, at a different university, but Pat saw me in video, like on video, uh, and seemed to like my, my setting ability. I think he said, you know, like my release and like that I was a pretty competitive guy. So they, they had just unexpectedly lost one of their veteran setters. Uh, so he needed a spot to fill. So I, I kind of got the call much later than most people would. Like, I think I had already finished my final exams. Uh, and then went on a recruiting trip to TRU and then like that following day committed. So Pat, Pat was the coach uh, and it was a real whirlwind situation where, you know, two weeks prior he had given me a call cause he saw some video 
uh, truthfully, I was just going to move on with life and go to the university of Lethbridge and just kind of, you know, probably end up being like a high school teacher. But, um, that kind of kickstarted years and years of, of chasing volleyball and bouncing around from city to city. Wow. Nice. Nice. And I'm sure we'll get into this when we talk more on the coaching side of things, but as an Ontario guy, one thing I've always respected about Canada West is just the schedule. So I'm curious with you being an athlete, like what did you think of, of the, the level overall in Canada West, but also it's crazy to me to think that you have to beat a team Friday and then regroup and beat them again on Saturday. Like what did you think of the strength of schedule and these back-to-backs that you're just always playing against top teams who figure out what your game plan is and then this weird cat and mouse thing really starts on that second match? Yeah, I think in a funny way, because you had kind of posed the question earlier, like what were my impressions going into Canada West? I I was one of those guys, like I think because I grew up in Lethbridge and wasn't really that tapped into like the volleyball world i knew that canada west was strong like i knew that the conference was strong but it's not like i necessarily idolized the guys that played in the conference because i just don't think i knew anybody so i went in i went into my year at tru just being like okay i know i'm an awesome college player at least in my mind i think i'm an awesome college player so i'll just come in and you know keep doing my thing so that first year you know, there was definitely, it was definitely like an adaptation period, but not necessarily, you know, was I unsure if I could hang in the league, but kind of to your point, we're just like, okay, every weekend we're going to be playing really good teams and there's going to be some national team guys across the net or, you know, Sanderson from Brandon, like an international stud. And I was just like, oh, okay, I guess this is what this league is all about. And to your point, like, I think it is such a huge strength of our, of our conference is that Friday, Saturday matchup. Uh, as an athlete, I loved it because, you know, as a setter, I've always enjoyed the, the tactical battle. And I think, you know, having that one game under your belt to get some familiarity of your opponent and then some time to you know go back, watch video, create a separate game plan, you know, isolate certain things that you can, you know, you can attack offensively or, or defensively or with serve. Uh, I've always enjoyed that. So as an athlete, I loved it. And as a coach, I love it. Like, I think you know, as a volleyball coach, there's only so much impact that you can have in the match. But I think, you know, having those back-to-back weekend matches is kind of where we can assert a little bit more of our, you know, tactical role with the team. And you mentioned playing against a guy like Sanderson. Was there anyone else who stood out that you're like, I, at the start of the match, you didn't really know who they were, but at the end, you're kind of like, wow, that player just tore us up or they were so good. Like you were impressed to be across the net from them. Like there's already... Any battles that stand out or any players that like you, you really respected after seeing them like up close and in person? Sanderson was definitely the the big one for me because uh, I definitely had no idea who he was. <laughs> That's not a, <laughs> an insult to him. That's more of a, a tell for how little I knew about volleyball at the time. But, you know, a guy playing in Brandon, I had no, no idea. So he was, you know, the guy because I knew a lot about how strong their team was. And obviously, you know, he was kind of nearing, I think that was his fifth year was, was my first year at TRU. Um, so I knew about him and, and honestly, I was really fortunate. Like I had the chance to play with Kevin Tilly at TRU. So I got Tilly in his second year. So I would say Tilly was the guy that I was most impressed with because I got to see the guy day in, day out in training. And, you know, particularly at that time, like he was still young, like that was his second year, um, like he was 20 at the time, but just how incredibly skilled he was. I had just never seen a player like that. So for me, I was really fortunate. I got to 
set that guy for a full season. But those two guys are definitely the ones that stand out in my mind. I totally forgot he was there because I, I seem to remember him more as an NCAA guy before he went to the, the France national team. But yeah, what was it like? Could he just switch it on when he wanted to? Was he always dialed in in practice? Like, what was it like playing with a guy who's, you know, one of the best players in the world? What was he like as a 20 year old? Would he just come to practice and be one of the guys? Or could you tell that he could, you know, really light it up when he wanted to? Yeah, it's funny. I feel like most people forget that till he played at TRU. But it's crazy to think like him and Gord. So until his first year, um, that was Gord's third year. So you had two, two guys who now are two of the best left sides in the world. Uh, just happened to both be playing on the same university team. Um, but Tilly, yeah, he was just one of those special athletes. Like he, he was and he still is just like a really outgoing, personable guy. Like he's just like one of the boys. But, you know, he was a guy who just, he trained like a professional. Uh, you could tell that he had that background. And you could tell, you know, like obviously his family, like they have – a really impressive lineage of athletes. And you could tell that he came from that type of household. Um, and even just going, going through kind of France's development system. Yeah. He, he was really impressive. Like I think professionalism is the word that would resonate the most when thinking what he was like. He, um, yeah, he was a guy who could just take over matches whenever we really needed him to. And we were, we were a decent, but not great team that year. Um, but having Tilly, he was, you know, the greatest lifeline to have. And I think for him, he really started to turn it on near the end of the season. Cause at that point, like it was always his dream to go down and play in the NCAA. Like his brother had played basketball at Utah, I believe. And his younger brother ended up playing at Gonzaga. So I think it was kind of always a, a dream for all the boys in the family to go play in the NCAA. So near the end of the season, he was being recruited by, you know, all the top California teams. Um, so I think he, he kind of knew that he needed to turn it on because I think he kind of was seeing it as a bit of a tryout for his next level, his next step. Nice, nice. Yeah, I love a good name drop. And that's one that I, I haven't remembered since oh, UCI played somebody in the final. And I remember him just going off. But anyways, I'm, I'm curious with your career. Did you have like one moment? Was it was it something you knew you were progressing to? Like when did you decide that coaching was going to be the next path? Were you still in your playing career? Did that come like once you decided playing was done, was there any overlap of you working camps or clinics or even coaching club? Like when did, when did the coaching bug really hit that you knew that was going to be the next step for you to kind of stay at a high level in our sport? Yeah, that's a good question. I honestly, I think I always knew I wanted to coach. So even like thinking back to my first year at Mount Royal, like I think it was just how I played. Like I kind of felt like I was a coach on the floor. Uh, and then, you know, like I, I wasn't, the loudest guy in the gym. Like I, you know, was a relative, especially as a younger guy, I was definitely like shy and like relatively laid back. Uh, but in practice, in games, <laughs> again, maybe I just got it from sky, but I, I was just hyper competitive and, you know, kind of like what I alluded to before, I just really enjoyed the tactical battle within, you know, practice or within a match. Uh, so I always felt like I was giving instruction to teammates and not, you know, as like that jerk who's just like, yelling for his teammates to do like one thing or the other, but you know, on whatever my side of six is or on my side of the net during a game, it would be like, okay, team, their middle blocker is doing this. So here's how we're going to isolate, you know, them on 30, so-and-so on the right side, that's going to be open for you. You know, like I would just have those conversations because those, those were the things that I was always looking for as an athlete. Um, and I think that's probably what I needed to do. Like looking back, that's probably what I needed to do to be successful. Cause I wasn't, 
I was athletic, but it's not like I was, you know, one of the top, top setters in the country. So I think for me to survive, especially when I got to TRU, like I think I just needed to be a coach on the floor. And then, yeah, just as I continued progressing through my career, and like for sure at, at Lethbridge College and then at TRU, like I was always coaching camps in the summer. That was just kind of what I would do, like my way of staying around the game in the summer. So got into coaching camps right away, like essentially in my second year. And um, yeah, I was really fortunate when I finished my playing career at TRU that uh, Pat wanted to keep me around and uh, I was able to be his kind of lead assistant coach right out the gate. Were you one of those setters who you knew at the end of the day if you won more drills than the other setter? Like, did Sean or Pat ever deliberately track that in, like, a competitive cauldron? Or were you a guy who just kept track in your head being like, I, I won more drills than you did today? <laughs> uh, yes. The answer is <laughs> uh, resounding yes. So Jay and I for sure had those battles. I can say this now because I'm further away from my coaching career. He obviously won more than, than I did. <laughs> but we, like, Jay, Jay and I would have, like, friendly banter and chirping going on. Uh, and then when I got to TRU, Colin Carson was the setter. And Colin was a, you know, junior national team guy. Uh, he set, like, he was a starting setter in his rookie season, like, with that team with Gordon, Tilly, and, you know, a couple other really talented guys. So I knew that he was kind of the, the guy, like, uh, you know, quote-unquote starter when I got there. Uh, and Colin is also extremely competitive. So him and I would go at it every single day. So Pat honestly didn't need to keep a, a cauldron, didn't need to keep track because Colin and I definitely kept track and we would <laughs> let each other know in practice. So like it wouldn't really matter what was going on around us, but him and I would always, always go after each other. Uh, it's fun, funny, like Colin to this day is still, still one of my best friends, but if he walked in, you know, walked in the gym when him and I were, were practicing, you would not assume that, that him and I were on good terms. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And it, I'm interested that you jumped right away from being a senior to an assistant coach. And I'm wondering, was there any transition period about as far as like being a peer to the guys? Or did you kind of know that you were now in a leadership role? Or did Pat really like his assistant coaches to kind of be the buffer between the head coach and the guys that you were maybe the one who squashed any trouble they were getting into before coach found out like how did you find your role and how you fit in because I think players transitioning from a coach is a hard step anyways but to do it with the same peer group and the same team that you were just competing with I think adds an extra layer of difficulty to it yeah I think in a, a funny way I was able to accomplish both in the sense that I was able to keep like relative distance from them in practice like when we, you know, would walk in the gym and we got into practice, I made it very clear that there was that divide, like that I was no longer their peer, but I was actually someone providing, you know, feedback and instruction. Um, but I think I kind of used it to my advantage, the fact that I was close with so many of the guys. Like I was still living with two of my teammates at the time. Um, and luckily they were both captains, you know, they were both older guys as well. So, you know, it's not like we were just messing around. And then I was that coach that just kind of brought that into practice. So I was able to, you know, kind of have my, my thumb on the pulse of the team from both sides of things. So, you know, if the team had some concerns, I was able to voice it pretty comfortably to Pat. And if, you know, the team needed a bit of a, you know, kick in the butt and, you know, if Pat was going off on the guys and the guys would kind of, you know, kind of mutter under their breath, I could give them his perspective and be like, Hey, you know, 
here's what he thinks. Here's coming from his perspective. Like now you need to see the same. So I think because I had that relationship with like a good relationship with Pat and then, then, you know, obviously still a a peer relationship with the athletes, I think I was able to kind of double dip a little bit. And honestly, I'm, I I had already said it, you know, like I was fortunate in the timing and the opportunity because I think Pat just trusted my opinion. And I think he trusted me more than what, you know, a fresh senior turned assistant coach gets. Like he allowed me to run one practice a week, really from the start of the season. Uh, so I was able to, you know, get a feel for coaching, get a feel for, you know, actually running my own practice, like at the university level right away. So I think, again, like he was able to shape that, that role for me. Uh, and I'm so, so grateful for it. Yeah, that's impressive. Like I think back about my own timeline, and I, I'm not ashamed to admit I was an arm for a lot of gyms that I was in and for you to have the opportunity to lead right away. So did that help you introduce, like, did he explain where the squad was as far as like periodization and was it going to be a heavy day, a light day where we're jumping a lot or were you just given free reign to like train the team you wanted to? Like, I'm curious the, the autonomy there for you to step in and do it, but was it kind of really guided by him that there was still a lot of structure around to really support you and, and the decision you were going to make for that, that session for the week? Uh, well, first, I don't think I was the the hired arm cause I had a horrible arm swing. So I think it was, <laughs> it would do more damage than, than good. If I was up on a box hitting balls, uh, I could hit a 53 and a float serve, but I couldn't actually hit a good down ball. So, uh, <laughs> but no, I think, you know, most of our practices were pretty heavy practices with Pat at the time. Uh, you know, he was, he definitely was and still is a you know, intense coach when it comes to training, but a lot of it would come like it would stem from conversations that him and I would have throughout the weekend or after the weekend of matches on, you know, what the team needed. So it's not like we, you know, we wouldn't sit down for this long elaborate coaches meeting before practice where he was, you know, kind of telling me what he wanted me to work on, but I had the autonomy to, you know, be the voice in practice. He really allowed me to sink or swim. Uh, I vividly remember some times where I definitely sunk in practice Um, but it's allowed me to, you know, objectively evaluate what the team needed in that time. And it it was a Tuesday practice. So it's not like it was, you know, Thursday before, you know, a couple of matches against whoever, but, um, you know, that was kind of the more technical practice. So him and I would evaluate what the team needed to work on, you know, based on conversations over the weekend. And then I just had the free reign to kind of shape practice how I felt. And with you being a setter, was that the position that you were most attracted to to kind of coach up? Or did you find yourself learning and appealing with other? Because I, I got to be honest with you, with a guy who didn't really play at a high level, I get annoyed when I'm working with other coaches and they say, oh, I I was a libero, so I can't train setters. Well, you still played volleyball and you still need to understand this on a tactical level. So you can't just ignore something because you didn't do it. So uh, I'm curious, again, with you going right from a player to a coach, naturally you're going to be appealed to the setters, but did you feel comfortable to like coach everybody up in your first year? Yeah, I think, you know, I was definitely that setter that always thought that he was a left side. So, nice. <laughs> so, and definitely my previous coaches would attest to me telling them that I thought I was a left side. Uh, I, in a funny way, so like I, I gravitate towards setters cause it's just like a, a position of comfort. And again, like I really enjoy the the tactical battle. So I enjoy being able to talk to setters about that. Um, but even though I was joking, I, I tend to gravitate towards coaching left sides. I think like I really enjoy the amount of responsibility that left sides have in a match in the sense that, 
you know, they're, they play a significant role in the serve receive and they play a significant role in attacking and terminating points. And I think I, I enjoy the mindset and the decision-making of setting a lot, but I also like to instill that same sort of mindset in left sides. So I like, I like left sides to understand, you know, why the setter is running the offense that they are, what's going to be available. And, you know, if the setter does this, what does that mean for them? So I would say like I kind of blend a little bit of both, I would say, um, yeah, the easy answer is, yeah, I definitely gravitate towards setters, but I've always really enjoyed coaching left sides. Nice. And before we take a, a dive into some some specific coaching stuff, I was hoping you could just wrap up your timeline a little bit. So how did you start the move around, right? So you go from TRU uh, and then you get the Lethbridge gig, right? So how did that opportunity come up uh, to go back home, but also be coaching at the post-secondary level? Yeah, this this is kind of kickstarting the really good timing and having people that I once made a good impression on, or, you know, must've been a half decent impression on. Uh, so Ian Bennett was still coaching at the, at Lethbridge college at the time. So, you know, the coach that I had played for in club and, um, you know, when I was at Lethbridge as an athlete, so Ian knew that he was moving on. Um, so he was an instructor at the college. And I think at that time he was interested in moving on to the university or, you know, just some, some other endeavor. Uh, so he had contacted me, I think halfway through our TRU year, like the, like my assistant coach, my last year there and just kind of presented the opportunity to move back home, take over the program at Lethbridge, do my master's at the university and, you know, kind of continue building that program that, that he had turned around. So, so well, um, without going into details that year was kind of the infamous year for Lethbridge college. And so they did not have many of their athletes returning. So rather than throw me into that fire, Ian remained for one year. Uh, so I assistant coached with him for a year and then I took over that following year. And then, uh, it was, again, I vividly remember it was the Tuesday going into our first league weekend. Uh, so my first league weekend as a post-secondary headed coach and, uh, Pat, gave me a call, uh, told me that he, you know, was starting to explore taking a sabbatical once, you know, their season was over. Cause that was, you know, Brad Gunter and a couple other, you know, pretty marquee guys in the program were going to be graduating after that year. So he kind of knew it was a natural time for him to take a break. Uh, so, so while preparing for my first college matches, I already kind of knew that I was going to have one foot out the door and I already knew kind of what my next step was. Uh, which, which was really interesting. It was a secret that I kind of had to hold to myself for a while, but, uh, in a funny way, it allowed me to use that year at Lethbridge as like, okay, I know that I'm really like, this is going to be my opportunity to get a feel for the profession because I'm going to be doing it at the Canada West level next year. So, you know, how can I bring in my own style, my own tactics, my own systems, into this team, knowing that it's probably going to be one and done and then move on and do the same at TRU. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was an awesome year at Lethbridge, but definitely an interesting one. Cause I, I kind of already knew what my next step was going to be. That's, that's awesome. So let's dive into that because I think I enjoy coaching at any level, whether I, I'm the head of the assistant. And I think the, the biggest difference to me is assistant coaches make suggestions and head coaches make decisions. So now that you're in charge of a program and you're going top to bottom, 
any of the stuff that you tried as far as systems, did anything really work that you kind of still carry with you? And then be honest with us, did anything blow up that you never really went back to because you, you took a chance on something and it just didn't stick? I, I think because, you know, I had really lofty expectations for where we could take that program. So Lethbridge College for most of my, you know, kind of high school playing days was not a marquee destination for college collegiate athletes. Uh, but you know, once Ian had taken over, the team went from not qualifying for provincials in, I think it was 15 years to now. I don't think that they've missed a provincials. So like Greg Evos, the current coach is doing an unbelievable job. Uh, so I, I had really lofty expectations have how we wanted to bring the program forward. And my, you know, my thought, my tactic was going to be to attract those guys who probably were going to get recruited to universities, but I was going to, you know, do a little throwback and keep those guys for a year or two at Lethbridge and then kind of move on. So I was able to, you know, we were able to bring in a couple guys that were, you know, really strong and probably, you know, were meant to move on to the Canada West afterwards, but I wanted them to run, you know, a university type system. So I wanted our offense to be fast. I wanted us to run pipe. I wanted us to run, you know, things that you would see more at a university or, you know, national team level. I wanted to run that right away. And I think a little bit was probably just that really excited young coach that was like, Hey, let's do the hardest things. Cause that's what, you know, we see on TV or on YouTube and you know, that's what I think is going to work. So I think probably push the envelope a little bit too much. And then we, we scaled back a little bit and just kind of found our right mix. Like we, we had really talented players. So like I was really fortunate that a lot of the things that we did want to do stuck, but I think, you know, I knew for us to be relatively successful that we needed to, to kind of, I don't want to say like play to our skill level, but heighten the abilities that our current athletes had and then develop them as time went on to, you know, maybe push a little bit more speed or like push the pipe, things like that. Nice. And then just to skip ahead again, just cause I know we're going to go down a rabbit hole eventually of coaching stuff. So <laughs> to, to go to TRU, what was it like being a head coach in that league? And now you, you're having to game plan against like Larry McKay, against Benjo, against like Brock and Terry at Alberta. Like there, there's so many good coaches in the Canada West. What were some of those battles? Like, did you, did you feel like it was you against them or it was your team against them? And you just had to coach your team up and build the system because there's a lot of layers to Canada West and, and I'm sure you could really, you know, start to pick little battles that maybe as a coach, you felt like you had to do more than you should have been doing, or did you kind of keep a team first and you were just going to train up the guys you had? Yeah, I, I definitely felt it was our team against everybody. And I think, you know, had I not had such a strong connection to that program, I probably would have been like a little bit more narcissistic and been like, yeah, you know, I'm the new coach and, you know, things are going to go my way and it's going to be me against you know, game planning for Larry McKay teams is pointless. So, so I don't know <laughs> if uh, attempting to do that is worth worth your time because he's always going to throw wrenches in whatever your plan is. But I, I didn't necessarily look at it as, hey, here's my time to prove to Canada West coaches that I could hang. I think I had way more pride in, you know, the TRU, like the roster had just turned over. You know, the team was really successful, a long run with, you know, guys like Brad Gunter, you know, tearing up the league to now having a really young team. So, you know, guys like Charlie Bringlow, who, who you might know as an Ontario guy, uh, you know, Josh Mullaney, Kyle Beheel, Sam Taylor Parks, like a lot of guys who were in their first year and, you know, kind of Gunter's last year. 
all those guys were now being ascended into significant roles that they didn't really have the year before. So my mindset in that year was to, you know, not necessarily like coach to Pat's personality because Pat and I have very, very different personalities. So it wasn't necessarily like, I'm just going to do a carbon copy of what that guy does. But it was like, okay, I'm going to take this group. I know I'm going to have them for one year. And honestly, kind of a segue to like what I was talking about with that Lethbridge College group. I just wanted to run things at a high level with the TRU group, knowing that we were probably going to take our lumps, but that eventually it was going to pay off for that group. So, you know, I wanted to be a really aggressive serving team. I wanted to run, you know, a pretty like provocative offense. Like I wanted to do things at a really high level, even though those guys were were super young and still like quite raw to the league. So we uh, we struggled. It wasn't awesome. We actually started off, started off pretty pretty well, and we I think it was the third weekend of our our season we played UBC. So that was Kerry McDonald's first year. Uh, so they were a talented team. Like you know, Ketarakis was there. Irvin Brar was you know those guys were just like really really kind of ascending into you know who they eventually became. Uh, and we lost to them in five in night one and i think it was like a 18 16 type of game and i think we lost in four the following night uh but you know looking back on video you know it was clear that what we were trying to do was working but that, what eventually ended up happening is the wheels just slowly started falling off the bus um but in a funny way like we were able to still keep morale and camaraderie and you know kind of our culture intact because i think the guys understood what we were doing I don't think they were too hung up on the fact that, you know, we were in a really competitive league when the, you know, there were a lot of really talented teams and what we were doing eventually was going to benefit this group in the long run. So I'm so grateful that they had that mindset because it would have been really easy for them to turn on me quite quickly where it's like, Hey, can we get the, the old guy back in the gym? Cause this young kid, you know, isn't really cutting it. <laughs> and in doing some research for the show, uh, I did stumble across an article when you were at TRU and it was just talking about the culture change and, and being in charge of a team, you know, that won two matches. But like you said, like you guys were competitive and it really didn't reflect what a two and 22 team looked like. But one thing I thought was fascinating about the article was you didn't want a team of like jerks that were going to be offside and kind of take jabs at each other. But at the same time, you didn't want to be talking about like rainbows and unicorns and too nice. So I'm curious you know, hearing about your history of like going through the net at the other setter. And even if it's Jay Blank and now on the other side, like you're still going to give your best and you're going to win the drill. Like, how did you kind of massage and manipulate that culture till it was where you wanted? Right. Cause I think that there is a sweet spot there, but there is those sides of the spectrum where either guys are too nice or they're a bunch of jerks and they don't want to play. Like, how did you find like coaching athletes to find that sweet spot where we're going to compete in battle, but at the end of practice, like we're all going to be friends again. Yeah, I, I think the the toughest part with that team is that they, they were all such good people and they were all such good friends. Like e- even, you know, coaching against that team, you know, after that year, it was just so obvious that, that those guys got along so well. So it was, you know, a blessing and a curse because they were a great group to be around. You know, practices were really enjoyable, but they didn't necessarily have that like a high competitive spirit right away. And you know, like it's, it's not even a, a shot to them and like their personalities. Like they were still young guys figuring out the league and, you know, their roles in their first years, or even like if they were older guys that were then kind of thrust into starting positions, they just hadn't ever occupied those roles in the Canada West before, you know, cause the team, 
the team prior to that could really rely on its, you know, like loaded gun on the right side. Like Brad Gunter was the guy who was just going to, you know, win you games. So I, I think a lot of guys just needed to, to carve out their role and then understand the personality that was required to excel in that role. And I think that was probably the, you know, the switch that we were looking to turn on throughout that year is like, okay, you were maybe like a f- the fourth or fifth left side prior to, but now there's going to be this expectation where, you know, you're going to be in a starting position or you're going to be that first guy off the bench. And what do those expectations mean? And what are the behaviors that need to be associated to those roles and those expectations that are going to allow us to be successful? So I think that was really, again, knowing that I like that Pat was going to return the year after and Pat was going to bring his, his fire and his, you know, competitive spirit. Um, I think, my big goal for that year was to establish those behaviors and those characteristics that were going to be needed for that team to be successful. You know, when those, when, you know, Charlie and, and STP and, and B heels, when those guys were in year five, um, you know, I, I wanted to look back and know that, you know, the work that we had put in in that year was going to pay dividends. Friend of the show, Jeff Miller started an amazing golf brand called club Jason. Designed with quality in mind, Jason sets no limits on comfort, feel, and appeal. They are devoted to growing the game of golf and creating opportunities for those who could benefit greatly from a little extra support. 10% of all sales will go to a Club Jason scholarship for a female golfer. An additional 10% of all sales will go towards junior golf programs in Ontario. Club Jason wanted to pass on some savings to you, official friend of the show. Use promo code DIMES, that's D-I-M-E-S, at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Jason also offers free shipping in North America on any order over $99. Visit clubjason.com, that's C-L-U-B-J-S-O-N.com, to check out their amazing clothing and to learn more. Jason, join the club. It's great to hear your process with that. And I'm curious if you could give us an example, like as you're explaining this, are these happening in one-on-one conversations? Are these happening in team meetings? Are you putting guys in in tough drills where you want to like demonstrate what it's going to feel like? So are you putting them in drills where they don't go get out unless it's like a plus minus scoring system or or how are you kind of applying this culture you want to build to action on the court? Like I'm really curious if you can give some examples to some listeners because my ears are perking up about the plan you laid out. I'm just curious as a coach, what did that look like in the gym? Yeah, I think all of the above, truthfully. Like, I, I think, you know, definitely in some one-on-one conversations, um, but a lot of it was more in team meetings. And, you know, being, I don't want to say like being really demanding, and, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily the guy who was going to bark at the team if I felt like they weren't, you know, competing or screaming at each other enough. But it was a little bit more of like, okay, we don't naturally have these personalities like the really like grizzly like i refer to them as bulldogs like we didn't have honestly i don't know if we had any bulldogs with that group but we had guys that were quietly competitive so like i always say you know play to your personality so i wanted the guys to be true to themselves but it was like okay you know (laughs) i'll use cole ketty was an example so cole was known as smiles on the team because he was genuinely the nicest guy who smiled all the time uh but Keddy was a really talented player. So we needed, we needed Cole to be himself. He was a relatively quiet guy, but we had him as a starting libero for a good chunk of the year. 
and say, okay, Kenny, like within your personality, you know, say to the team, what are you going to do to bring a little bit more competitive spirit or fire to practice? Like, let's just put it out in the gym. So everybody's aware. So if they see it, they can acknowledge it and congratulate it. And if they don't, they can hold you accountable and try to pull that out of you. So I think we were a little bit more hands-on in that sense, as opposed to, you know, me just blowing the whistle, yelling at guys that it wasn't good enough and that they needed to try harder to then like hope to pull that out of them. And one thing actually that just kind of sparked a memory, one thing that we did, uh, so Ken Laven, who, uh, he was an assistant coach who he's a guy who was actually, he's actually a UBC alum, but he just happened to be in Kamloops and had worked with Pat a little bit the year before. So Ken was kind of the, the older assistant coach on our staff with myself and, and Matt Kruger. Um, and Matt, you know, obviously a young guy at the time as well. Um, and Ken had had the idea of downloading an app on the iPad that was, uh, shoot, what's the word? Like it tracks the, the noise level. Like you see them, you see them in like football games, like in arenas where they'll throw it on the jumbotron and it's like, make some noise. And it has kind of like those, uh, like decibel readings. Yeah. So we pulled those, we pulled those out and we would say like, okay, this drill, you guys need to maintain a certain level when we get into like in rally or between rallies. And we kind of set a standard for just like what the volume level of practice was going to look like. So I think after we established kind of what the individual behaviors were going to look like, it's like, okay, now let's put it to test. Like let's, let's be a little bit more objective with this. You know, you guys need to be at, you know, X decibels for us to feel like you guys are engaged and communicating and providing, you know, that competitiveness that we need. That's amazing. I've never heard that one before. I'm going to write that one down. That's a good one. Uh, yeah, I definitely, I definitely don't think that we've, you, I've used it since it was, you know, just one of those, one of those crazy ideas that us coaches just kind of threw at the wall. And I think the guys had fun with it. And I think that was probably why it was relatively successful is that it wasn't, you know, we, we weren't holding, holding them to it and be like, Hey, if you don't reach this, you're going to run. But it's like, Hey, okay, let's quantify what we're talking about here. Like let's quantify the excitement level in the gym. And then we would just kind of talk about it and say, like, okay, you know, we were at a, you know, I'll just throw out a random number. You know, we were at 40 today or in that practice. Like, do you feel like that was how we wanted to play or do we want to play with like a little bit more volume? And if we do want to play with more volume, how can we make it constructive communication as opposed to, you know, just mindlessly yelling that the setter is back row. You know what I mean? Like actually having tactical, intelligent conversations. Nice. Nice. And again, looking at my notes here, you had one more stop before you get the UBC gig and that was at uh, UBCO. So knowing that Pat was coming back, were you on the hunt uh, again? Were you right place, right time? And you had a connection? Like how did you get to UBCO before applying for the UBC job? How... I, I don't think I was really on the hunt. I definitely didn't know what I was going to do. <laughs> I, I, I still had a lot of friends in Kamloops, so it's not like I was looking to leave and you know find my next stop. And truthfully, at that point, I would think I was already sick of changing my address and you know getting a new phone number every time that I was moving cities. But I remember at Best of the West, so I guess it actually would have been around this time a couple of years ago, uh, just bumped into Brad Hudson, the, the coach at UBC Okanagan. Uh, and I don't think Brad and I really knew each other that well. Like we had met, like our Lethbridge college team came out to Douglas for Christmas, the one year that I had coached. So that was kind of my only interaction with Brad. 
Um, but you know, kind of funny, like to what we were talking about you know, a couple minutes ago, I, I think our team's positivity and cohesiveness when we were two and 22, uh, kind of resonated with Brad. Cause I think he appreciated that, you know, whatever it is that we were doing. And truthfully, I don't know exactly what the, the magic formula was, but whatever it is that we were doing clearly had a positive impact on our TRU team. Cause I, I think we had played the heat relatively late in the season and I'm quite positive that we lost both. But I think he was just impressed that I was a coach who was able to still maintain that positivity, even though, you know, we weren't getting the results. So I think, you know, and now having worked with Brad and, you know, become much closer with Brad, I think he really values the the team culture piece. And I think that's a, a big thing of what they do with the Heat. Um, so Brad, you know, sat me down a couple times at Best of the West in Calgary that weekend. And then when we kind of returned home, we had a more serious conversation. So then same sort of thing, like, good timing. Brad was in need of a, a full-time assistant coach, which was, you know, going to provide a little bit more of an honorarium than what I was receiving, but, uh, through connections. So one of the athletes on the TRU team, his dad, Norm Hansen, who another UBC alum, Norm, they live in Kelowna and Norm works or worked with Pacific sport Okanagan, which is like a regional branch of the Canadian sport Institute. So Norm knew that Pacific Sport was going to be looking for uh, a sport performance coordinator. Uh, so then I was able to meet up with Shauna Taylor, who was, you know, kind of leading things, the director at Pacific Sport Okanagan, and the timing worked really well. The person who previously occupied that position was moving into the their sports school. So I was able to kind of like walk into a really, really cool opportunity to still work in sport and make, you know, like a, a better living than, you know, what a assistant coach would make while still being able to have the flexibility to focus on volleyball coaching. So I was so fortunate that Shauna was so understanding and Shauna, she, she has a background in sports psychology and she's been to God, I don't know, a handful of Olympics. Like she's worked with some really, really impressive teams. I think Shauna understood my path what I was going for. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I wound up in Kelowna and yeah, really, really grateful for the opportunity that Brad presented me, but also Shauna Taylor and Pacific sport Okanagan. And then your, your, your current step to be at UBC when Kerry gets scooped up by volleyball Canada and take on a, a big role with the sports science department, I think he is the department, but, uh, what was your excitement level when you see that posted or were you, like either close with Carrie or know people at the UBC who like the job was going to come up or did you honestly just see it posted and apply and go through the interview process? Like, how did you get that one? Because that's, that's a beautiful campus. That's a competitive program. Like that's, that's a pretty good job to get and you're well-deserving. I'm just curious how you got your foot in the door. Yeah, I'm going to be a, a broken, broken record here <laughs> and say it was really good timing and I had made a good impression at some point. So Carrie, it was the week after they had won the national championship. So, you know, they came back from McMaster. They had their, their week-long celebration. And then I knew that Matt Laborde, their assistant coach, was going to be moving on. Uh, and Maddie had been with the program forever. So I kind of assumed when Kerry reached out to me, you know, like I had, I had texted him after they won, kind of wished him congratulations. And he was like, oh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Like, let's connect in a week, you know, kind of when all this dies down. 
So I, I just assumed that that's what he was going to talk to me about was, you know, coming and, you know, applying for Matt Laborde's assistant coach position. Um, and so Carrie and I get on the phone, we have kind of this long conversation. He's talking to me about, you know, just the experience of, of winning that national championship. And we like, I, I watched all the games and, you know, was able to kind of have like the coaches conversation with him. So then finally we're like, honestly, probably an hour and a half into our <laughs> shoot in the breeze conversation where he's like, okay, we actually need to get like down to business here. And I remember I, I like interrupted him and I was like, Hey, Kerry, you know, I really respect you as a coach would love to get to work with you. Like I had worked with Kerry with the youth national team the summer before and was like, Hey, I really enjoyed my time working with you, but you know, Vancouver is really expensive. I'm assuming that the assistant coach position doesn't pay me like six figures here. And I have a really cool thing going on here in, in Kelowna. Like if coaching doesn't work out this you know, Pacific sport position, I think could be a cool kind of gateway. Like I almost had this, you know, rejection message pre-recorded for him. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, that sounds great, man. Like Kelowna is awesome. I get that. And you know, yeah, we definitely need to fill the assistant coach position. Uh, but I actually want you to take my job. <laughs> I honestly like fell to the floor. I was like, what, what are you talking about? I had no idea that that was coming. And that was right around the time, and hopefully I'm allowed to say this, that was right around the time that they were creating the director of sports science position that he now occupies. So he was in conversations with Volleyball Canada. I don't think it was, you know, like rock solid, like concrete, that that is exactly what they were going to do. But he wanted to make sure that he could bring someone in to UBC that he could trust to kind of continue what he had been doing, like what, like what was building. Um, cause I think at that time they weren't positive that his position was going to be, um, you know, continuous. Like I think they kind of had this idea that it was going to be a little bit of a trial period with volleyball Canada. And then if they felt like it was, you know, if, if he was successful or if he was impacting change that they were going to continue on. But at that time it was really uncertain. So, you know, we were able to work with the athletic directors at UBC and, you know, I agreed to come on as a two year, I think. I think the agreement was always a two-year interim, so I, they didn't necessarily need to post the position. But I had a couple meetings with the athletic director, um, and it, again, like it was just Carrie that was vouching for me. Even though you know it's not like him and I worked together for years and years, and that we were best friends, and you know that's how we were being connected. I think he just appreciated my coaching style and understood that you know I was a young guy that wanted to continue exploring you know, the science of sport and yeah, so that's, that's kind of what kickstarted this opportunity was just, you know, Carrie really vouching for me and then being able to step in as an interim coach and getting the keys to the Ferrari and being able to kind of use those two years to prove to the department that I was the guy that should take over long-term. Yeah, this is, this is amazing to hear about your process. And I, and I don't think you're just a guy who was the right place at the right time. You're obviously earning these roles, but I am curious hearing about your process, like you're in tough at TRU and, and you take down two games and now you're following a national championship and the guy you're following is very data driven, very evidence driven. Like, uh, I'm wondering, did you ever get a sense of like identity or ego or anything that like you had to be a certain coach or all these things? Because uh, it, it sounds great that the TRU thing, like you're, you're following a process and the guys are getting better, but now going into the UBC gig, did you have to feel like you had to prove that you are a good coach or did you, have you ever had any of those moments in your coaching career? I definitely like that first term of my first year, I definitely 
felt that. And it for sure was not anything that Carrie ever, you know, inflicted on me. Like Carrie is like one of the least ego driven coaches I've ever met. And I, I wouldn't say that I coach like being driven by ego, but I think, you know, I, we kind of talked about it before where, you know, before it was always like, Hey, you know, team success, team success. I think I kind of felt in that moment where I was like, okay, this team's already successful. Now I really need to prove, you know, who I am as a coach. So that was honestly like, if, if I look back on what my coaching career has been like so far, that one semester, so like that first term of my first year at UBC, my growth as a coach it was 10 times more. Like my development was like a 10 time rate than what it had ever been. Cause I was, you know, trying to understand the nuances of what Carrie had been doing around the, you know, serve velocity tracking, the periodization, um, you know, really incorporating sports science into our team environment, like our training and competitive environment. But then I had kind of my own personality. And like, I always coached a little bit more from like a, like humanistic approach where I was going to be like, like my background isn't like carries. Like I don't have a PhD in, in sports science. Like my, my master's is in kind of more of like a social science. Like it's kind of like a sports psychology meets sociology. So I was always more aware of like social identity, social identity, leadership, team culture. But then I just stepped into a team that was like a laboratory. Like every day was a different science experiment. So for me, that first term, I really wanted to continue the success that Carrie had built and that the, I wanted to continue the expectations within that program. So even though we were super young, like we had turned over a ton of guys, you know, I think we lost four starters from that previous year and, you know, kind of hoped that Ketarakis and McCarthy were going to return, but, you know, obviously they moved on to awesome professional careers. So I still wanted to bring a lot of the success and expectations, but while I was still trying to figure out exactly how I was going to do that while staying true to my style and my personality. So it was, that was by far the most challenging coaching period of my life. So even though like we were pretty successful, like we, we didn't win a ton of games, but like we were building, I still felt the pressure that like I was heaping on myself to, to allow our team to develop, allow our team to grow while also growing as a coach. And then, you know, we were really fortunate. We went to Hawaii uh, you know, over Christmas, we were one of those teams that had a buy the first weekend coming back in term two. So we were able to go to Hawaii and it was honestly the breath of fresh air that we all needed. Uh, you know, I remember having a couple like really key conversations with Ian Perry, uh, our lead assistant coach at the time, just around kind of like this conversation of like, Hey man, like coach to your personality. Like what Carrie did was fantastic. We all kind of have that know, in our back pockets, but like do it your way. And I think I kind of took the, the shackles off myself a little bit and I was just able to, to learn how to, you know, kind of bridge the scientific and humanistic approaches to coaching and kind of do it with my own personality. And honestly, that, that Hawaii trip was our, our TSN turning point. Cause we ended up going, I think it was like 11 and one or yeah, I think we only lost one game in that second semester. And we went from, you know, a team that was, second last or third last in the conference to sneaking into a seventh spot going into playoffs. 
Yeah, this this is awesome, man. Let, let's do it. Let's go down the rabbit hole. Because as you're, you're you're explaining this, I'm just nodding my head being like, yeah, this this sounds a little bit like me where whenever I get a chance to speak to Carrie, which which through work is awesome, we'll, we'll get our work done. And then I'll probably ask him a dozen questions about serve speed or periodization or how many jumps or how does he track soreness or load and all this stuff and transfer. But yeah, I, I was a communication arts student. So I totally believe in like the human behavior, the identity, like sociology, all that stuff. Like, so for you to bridge this, uh, I, I mean, any coaches listening, you, you got to do the work yourself and you got to be in the gym and try stuff. But if this podcast helps give them like a little boost off the start, let, let's do it. So how did you find that balance? Because for our listeners not familiar with Kerry McDonald, like he's figuring out the optimal speed to hit a float serve. He's figuring out the alt, uh, optimal flight path of a spin serve. Like they're they're figuring out when guys are going to be sore, what their max jump is and how many times they should jump. So there is very data driven. And here you come in with your own style. So what did you like from his that you kept going? And then what were some things that you were able to bring in and put your own spin on things with, with some of the points you just brought up? I think for me, like one of the biggest challenges was, you know, like a lot of our processes around sports science, like we were always going to continue those and we were always going to continue moving them forward. Uh, and we were really fortunate, like Carrie was and still is a part of our coaching staff. So it's not like he just, you know, threw me the keys and said, good luck, kid you know, sink or swim here. And he was still around, but at the same time, he was establishing himself in this awesome new position with Volleyball Canada. So he was, you know, we were able to have a transition period, but not, you know, it's not like he was in the gym holding my hand, walking me through everything, which, you know, actually like looking back on it now is probably the best thing for me. So, you know, I had to figure out exactly, you know, what the processes were around, um, periodization around our serve velocity tracking around even just the way that we do game plans. And I think one of the big things, like, like one of my big lessons learned with that team is that, so like the, the team that won the national championship was the polar opposite in terms of personalities that the team that I took over was. So, you know, Guys who have ever played or been in the gym with Byron Ketarakis know that that guy is, he is a bulldog. Like that guy, he is a grinder. He is like a vicious competitor. And he was in a gym with Keith West, who was also like that, with Irvin Brar, who was also like that, Matt Guidi, Finn McCarthy, essentially their entire roster. You know, those older guys all kind of came with this like really aggressive, competitive um, you know, behavior or personalities. So right away, I kind of wanted to continue that. I was like, oh, yeah, this team obviously just won a national championship. Clearly that behavior is going to be what our, our group needs, our gym needs. Uh, but then we had a bunch of first years and second years and guys who were not that personality. We're not like up in your face in practice. So I, I think we tried to carry over maybe too many things that the 2018 championship team had done. Because that group was special and they were unique as any team is, but their personalities were very different. So I think, you know, I was able to carry over a lot of the sports science, but also trying to carry over a lot of the things that I knew, like the, the team culture pieces. So I think as we started to shift that, and again, like going back on my TRU experience probably helped, was like, okay, how can we just like play to our personality a little bit more? And how can I coach to my personality a little bit more? So you know, how could we take the things that we know are going to allow us to be successful and have an optimal training environment? So a lot of the things that Carrie had, had passed down, but then how can I do it like my way? Like how, how can I put like my, my spin on it 
and my personality on it? And how can I even more importantly put like this collection of athletes, like their spin on it and their personality. And I think we had a couple of like really good team conversations in Hawaii, uh, which is obviously like a nice place to have these like, you know, huge moments. But, um, we just came back in term two and I think we were just really comfortable with who we were. And I felt significantly more comfortable with who I was as a coach. Uh, and then we can just kind of like hit the ground running from there. And if it's not too private and you don't mind this, you know, going on the internet, when you say culture, are you a big rules guy? Are you like, let's make a mission statement and let's like stick to it. Like, are you making a big goal? Like we're going to win a national championship and then trying to filter that down to daily tasks. Like when you say culture, like what are some actionable things that like during that first team meeting or those first few team meetings, like this is stuff you're trying to establish or, or how are you building this into the, like the first years know what's expected by like the way actions are happening and the way things are behaving. Like how do you, how do you establish those? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's probably where I had like my biggest, I don't say misstep, but maybe I will. A misstep is that I think we were trying to carry over too much of the, the previous teams, like their team identity. Uh, so like Kerry, you know, he can correct me if I'm wrong here, but he's not a big rules guy. And he wants his athletes to kind of have the freedom. Like athlete autonomy is a big part of our, our training environment. Like we give our guys a ton of responsibility, but that's really easy when you have a lot of fourth and fifth years and not really easy when you have, you have a lot of first and second years, especially if those first years are being like ascended into high impact roles. So I think we kind of came into this like, okay, we're really going to preach athlete autonomy and joy and, you know, competitive spirit in our gym. And, you know, we were very, you know, very distinct with like, that's how our training environment was going to be. But it's like, okay, we kind of skipped the part that these guys don't actually know how to put that into action. So kind of similar to, you know, what I explained with that TRU group is that we kind of had to be a little bit more like proactive with it rather than expect that they're just going to eventually figure out that behavior. It's like, okay, Matt needs when, you know, we're in practice or we're in a game, like what are you going to bring? That's going to, you know, show your teammates that you're engaged or competitive or, you know, playing with joy. And, you know, like Mike Dehania, Colton Liu, Ben Hooker, Zach Johnson, like all these guys, like how are you guys going to bring your personality to kind of heighten our team's culture? And we, I'd say like we failed to do that right out the gate. Cause I think for me, I think I just wanted to replicate what the previous team had done. And I think because I had seen from a distance that team have success, um, I kind of wanted to replicate that. But I think, yeah, if, if my long rambling stories here can teach any lesson, it's just always stay true to like your team's personality and your personality as a coach. Cause I think, you know, and talking to some of our athletes that are still at UBC now, like talking back to them about that first semester in that first year, like I'm sure it was really obvious to them that I wasn't being genuine to who I was. And, you know, it was maybe trying to like prove a little bit too much that, you know, I could hold up a lot of the things that Carrie had done. But I think once I became more comfortable in how I wanted to coach the team, I think that level of, you know, genuine relationship building allowed us to, you know, kind of have the success that we've had really ever since that, that infamous Hawaii trip. Nice, nice. Kind of a, a two-parter here because I hear you say joy and it reminds me, one, are you a Steve Kerr fan? Because that's a big principle in him. And two, <laughs> is joy 
can there be an edge to it? Like if I get a stuff block, like, uh, you know, celebrating aces and kills, that's fun. But my favorite sellies were blocks. Like if I get a block, can I flex on the guy across the net? Is that me expressing joy or is that me being a jerk? Like where, where's the line in your gym? So first question, definitely a Steve Kerr fan. And that definitely (laughs) comes from what the warriors do. Like joy is kind of the, the basis of everything they do. And I think, I think I had first heard about that the year that I was coaching at TRU. Cause I, I remember distinctly, like I, I've read Pete Carroll's book. Um, and there was a lot in there about like building your coach philosophy and things like that. And I always kind of knew that I wanted like my coaching style and our training, like my team's training environment to reflect joy, but I don't think I ever actually articulated it that way. So then whenever, whenever I came across the, you know, Steve Kerr and the warrior said, that's what they were doing. Uh, that just really resonated with me. And, and luckily, you know, that's definitely how Carrie had established the team's training environment prior to. Uh, so with that team, you didn't need to promote joy as like flexing on guys when you get a block or an ace because those guys did it automatically. <laughs> like if anything, like that coaching staff in 2018, you know, as like an outsider's perspective, I think they had to rein that in. Yeah, I think those guys had no problem, you know, showing their competitive spirit. And then with the young guys that we had in my first year, it was like, okay, our joy isn't just going to be that we play music and that we have fun, but that you're going to leave our gym every practice being like, I worked my ass off. I fought really hard against my teammates. That was a lot of fun. And like, I think any of us that are a part of like high performance, that's when we enjoy sport the most when it's competitive, when it's gritty, when it forces you to, to kind of push your boundaries. And like, yeah, sometimes we like to just like dance and warm up because we're playing some sweet music. But like when the whistle blows, we need to understand that like we're going to represent, we're going to, you know, exhibit our joy in a completely different way. Can you give me an example of what autonomy looks like in your gym? And the reason I bring it up, just a shameful plug for the show. When we had John Mayer on who runs Coach Your Brains Out, which is a great podcast I recommend anybody listens to it who mm-hmm. hasn't. Uh, I asked him about autonomy and he said flat out, he's like, autonomy isn't showing up to practice and saying, hey, guys, what do you want to work on today? It's, hey, Mike, we're going to work on serving today. When you're like the the star of the drill, do you want to serve six balls or eight balls? Like even that can be autonomy where you feel like you now have a control and it's your serve. Right. So it could be something super small that you might do with like a U12 team and just say, is it six or is it eight? Or maybe with a university team, you can ask them specifically like on drill design stuff. But like what what does it actually look like in your gym where you're still organized, you're still leading the periodization like science based, but the athletes still feel like they're they have a big input on the environment? Yeah, we're we're really fortunate. So Matt Kruger, who I've already referred to a couple of times. So Crew, he's uh, he's now our lead assistant coach and crew, he's got his master's in motor learning. And you know, when it comes to like motivational theory, autonomy is gonna be a big piece around that. And I think the cool thing is that, you know, we've got Matt, a part of our coaching staff who can always kind of bring the motor learning point of view around our drill design. So autonomy, honestly, is the foundation of like a lot of the things we do. So around like game plans, even like decisions, you know, in, in match preparation. But, you know, in the day in, day out grind, we give our guys choice as often as we can. And like, kind of like what you're saying, it's like, it's not like we show up with a blank whiteboard and say, okay, you guys are just going to choose what practice is today. But like a really, really easy example, it's like, okay, we're going to, 
you know, go through movement prep or like dynamic warm up, and then we're going to play a little bit of a warm up game or like a, you know, first activity. Here are three options that all kind of execute whatever our objective for the day is, but they're going to do it in a different fashion. You guys pick which one you want to do. And then, you know, maybe the next activity, you know, we don't give them the choice of what it is that we're going to do, but we'll, we'll leave it relatively open for a lot of like those really small details where those guys just get to make decisions. Cause I think not only does it build motivation in training, which, you know, given the fact that we're training from end of August until middle of March and, you know, exam training into, you know, late April, it's like motivation is a, is a thing that we need to be really cognizant of. But I think also just providing that heightened sense of purpose in training is really powerful with athletes. So if they feel like they're a part of the process in shaping their own training environment, I think that's going to lead to that heightened sense of motivation, heightened sense of purpose. And truthfully, this makes practice more enjoyable for all of us. Um, cause then if things don't go well or they're not really performing the way that, you know, you hope that they would, you can kind of just fall back on it. Where it's like, Hey, you guys chose this, you know, this was what you guys wanted to do today. So, you know, let's grab a drink, let's come back in and let's go back at it. So like it's, it's, you, you have to be careful of, you know, maybe not giving too much autonomy and allowing them to do, I don't want to say like to do too much, but you need to make sure that it fix, fits in whatever your objective is. So if in that practice you're working on receive to attack patterning, you know, maybe don't give them complete autonomy where it's like, Hey, middles, you guys are just going to hit left side if you feel like it today. But it's like, okay, within the constraints of our training environment, you guys have the freedom to make the decisions that you want to. Now let's talk about it and then move forward. Have you ever seen it abused either in your gym or have you, you know, you're, you're a big believer in this and you've got me buying it because you say it with such passion, but have you ever you know, given this to a club coach or a high school coach and they try it and it doesn't work. Like, is there some growing pains that comes with this? Because I imagine mature athletes like, yeah, they're going to be accountable to this, but I'm, I'm curious if you ever had autonomy maybe go wrong or it was a learning opportunity that you really had to address with the squad. Oh, definitely. Um, I, I think within each team, you need to understand how much autonomy you can give. And it's not like you don't trust them to make the right decision. But if you, if you have a really mature group who understands like the nuances of a season and like what you're trying to accomplish in training, then you can probably give them a little bit more autonomy because they're going to understand the bigger picture because they just have experience. Like it's not even like saying, you know, one group is more like emotionally mature than another, but it's just like experience is a big factor. And, you know, again, going back to that first term of a first year that I was at UBC, like, like autonomy was a really big part of the training environment that I was walking into. So I was like, yeah, that sounds great. I believe in that as well. So we were, <laughs> we were giving a bunch of first and second years, a ton of autonomy. And it's like, Oh wait, you guys have no experience in this league. And you know, you guys are coming from, you know, club seasons or high school seasons you know, the Canada West season is a completely different beast. So we needed to kind of move through like trial and error to determine just how much autonomy was going to be appropriate for that group. Uh, and then, you know, in my second year, it was a little bit different, you know, maybe we could give them a little bit more or we just shaped it differently. And then this year, same thing. It's like this year, especially cause we were just training the entire time. We gave the guys a ton of autonomy, but also it's cause I just understood that they had the experience and the perspective necessary for autonomy to be really beneficial where it's like, if you're just, 
throwing like inexperienced or young athletes into like a wide open, you know, autonomous practice, it's probably going to go a little haywire. So you need to, again, like have constraints within those decisions, but then allow them to make decisions. And when you mention including autonomy in the game planning, have you ever either had conflict within the team or had to be the heavy and say, as the leader of the squad, we're going to do this, like, Maybe you've watched every game this setter's played for the last three years of eSports and you're going to say, I'm going to serve position one because I want to get behind the setter because that causes him stress and it really breaks down their offense. And then you've got seniors on the team saying, no, I know this team. I want to serve the P2 the whole match, but he's going to be in five for most of the game where you're going, no, I'm game planning for the setter. And they're going, well, no, we're trying to get aces and get them out of system. Like that's just a small example of what could happen. But when you talk autonomy in a game plan, like have you ever had to override the group or do those honestly just lead to more conversations and it it works itself out in the end? I would say a little bit more the latter. Uh, And I think for that process to be successful, like for us to have autonomy within, you know, legitimate tactical decisions and, you know, system decisions going into matches, the guys need to have a really good understanding of what our systems are or like our philosophies are, you know, just like overriding principles. I think if you don't have those and same sort of thing, you kind of just throw the guys in and say, okay, you guys come up with a game plan. Then I think that's probably where you're going to get yourself into trouble where, you know, again, like th- these guys that we've had in our program now for the three years that I've been at UBC, uh, you know, I think we're pretty you know, explicit with exactly like what our philosophies, our principles are. And like we talk about them pretty frequently. So then when we go into like, a regular game plan situation, like we'll provide them with a lot of objective information, like a lot of the statistical analysis going into the game. So they'll have kind of the the what, I guess, you know, they'll have that, that ob- objective statistical information and then they can watch video and then they can create a little bit more of like the why and the how. Um, so they, they get a little bit more of like the intricate details that really only matter to them. Cause like as a coach, I can bark the orders to them and say, Hey, you know, Jesse Elser hits this shot in high ball. So this is how we're going to block it. Cause this is what it looks like. And here's how we're going to play defense. But it's like, I'm not the guy going up and blocking it. I'm not the guy going up and digging it. So why would I give them my perspective when it's their perspective that needs to be shared? So, you know, our athletes will watch video and then kind of present it to the group within the pre-existing framework of our, you know, objective game plan and then our pre-existing team principles and philosophies. And I think because we talk about them so often, because it's, you know, just so prevalent, like in our conversations within our team, I think the guys get, you know, tactically, like what, I guess, like what the frame is that they're working from. And knowing that you're a, a big Steve Kerr and a Pete Carroll fan, like I am, uh, I can edit this out if this doesn't need to make the internet, but I'm curious, <laughs> do you have any just unwavering principles that like, as you mentioned, every team's a little bit different. You're a big autonomy guy and like, they're going to have an influence in shaping it. But if a team is going to be coached by Mike Hawkins, is there some unwavering principles that you bring to the squad that you're going to either do this technically, tactically, or this is going to be a part of the culture? I think joy and autonomy are two really big ones. And I think, 
you, you know, I, I had mentioned how the Pete Carroll book, you know, there's, uh, it's like in the shape of a pyramid and I've kind of made my own, like around a coaching philosophy. One thing that's always really resonated with me is just professionalism. And I think for us, you know, within our UC program, like we're looking to attract guys who have aspirations of having professional careers, but we're also getting them when they're like 17 years old or 18 years old. So we really harp on the guys to create a professional environment. So sometimes joy and professionalism kind of conflict every once in a while because the guys want to have like a nice laid back environment, but then I'm going to get on them if I don't think our movement prep is, you know, dialed in enough or if our, you know, initial reps in our first activity, like if they're fully prepared to, you know, compete and execute right away. So I, I think I kind of have that dichotomy a little bit between joy and professionalism. Uh, but I think hopefully we've kind of found a nice balance where we're able to execute both. But I'd say those, those three for sure, uh, joy, autonomy, and professionalism. And do you ever pull your, whether you have a captain or a leadership committee or just a group, and if you treat leadership like it's a skill, like do you ever green light those athletes or any athlete to stop practice? Because, yeah, I think there, there could be a gray area between joy and professionalism. So there's a difference between being joyful and being a jackass, right? So I'm wondering, are you the one always having to be the heavy in the gym? Or have you had athletes like, hey, coach, I'm going to stop practice right now because this needs to be addressed and we need a water break or we need a quick chat here? I would say at the beginning of the season, I probably need to be the voice more often just because we're still establishing standards and behaviors like within that team's identity. Um, but truthfully, my perfect practice would be a practice where I don't have to say anything, like where I can just write the activities on the whiteboard. I can blow my whistle a couple times, you know, tell them to grab water and then they operate you know, by themselves. Um, so it's something that we definitely promote that I, I think there need to be voices within our leadership group that continue to establish our standards and our behaviors within our training environment. And, um, you know, it's one thing that, you know, again, like that I've learned over my last couple of years here at UBC is like just having more of a hands-on role within our leadership group and not just, you know, like I think it's irrational to just expect someone to, know exactly how they should act from a leadership standpoint. Like nobody's a perfect leader. Uh, but to your point, like I think it's a skill that can be developed. So, you know, this year we established really clear roles within our leadership group. So we had one guy who was again, like to use the bulldog term again, like Tyson Smith was our, our team captain because he fit that role. He was the guy that, you know, wasn't going to put up with the bullshit if, you know, the team wasn't performing the way that it needed to you know, Tyson was going to speak up. And then we had Mike Dehaniuk, who was a little bit more like our strength and conditioning and like social guy. So even in a year where we couldn't really socialize, you know, I relied pretty heavily on Mikey to make sure that, you know, guys were still connecting, you know, virtually, or, you know, like we did some stuff in training, just promote, you know, that social interaction a little bit more. And then, you know, two of our other leaders were guys who kind of had like their own separate roles. So it's not like it's one guy, who feels like he needs to take the, the burden of, you know, making sure that every athlete in the gym is kind of upholding our standards, but everybody kind of had their own role. And then we would have conversations on, you know, what the expectations were and then how they could go about upholding those standards or, you know, kind of promoting accountability within the right way, like going about it. That was going to be the most positive and beneficial for our group. And do you find, 
at your level, hopefully this works at, at all levels, but just looking at athlete development, like we're recording this on a day where the next gen team was announced and between current and mm. alumni, like there's four UBC guys on there, I think just counting real quick. But, um, have you ever had a, a situation with athlete development where you had to convince the athlete that they should want to learn this or they need to learn this? Like if you're telling, uh, I don't know the pipe example, if you're, if I'm flying out of the pipe and I can only pull it to the one side, are you coaching me up to be the five side? And can I brush you off and just say, you know, I, I if it's autonomy and it's my choice, I don't think I need that shot coach. Like I, I'm scoring with this shot. Like have you ever had a situation where they try to big time you and they tell you that, that you'd, your play of player development portfolio right now, your plan for me, I just, I don't agree with it. So I'm not going to do it. I think <laughs> that's a, a great question. Actually. I think, you know, definitely like at the beginning of my time at UBC, like I think there was always going to be a feeling out process, but I think once we established trust and like trust, you know, if I had those three other, you know, qualities like joy, auto- uh, autonomy and professionalism as kind of three pillars. I think trust would be my fourth one. I think once there was mutual trust between the athletes and myself and like the athletes and my, and the coaching staff, um, those situations I wouldn't say really arise. We promote conversation though. So it's pretty rare. And I think even just like with, (laughs) I hate to sound like the old guy here, but like with kids (laughs) these days, uh, but I think with athletes, particularly like high performance athletes at this stage in their careers and this generation, it's pretty rare that you're going to find someone who's like a real high performer where it's like coach says to do X. So you're just going to, you know, shut up, be quiet and do X. And, you know, honestly, like we promote the conversation. So I, I always say that you need to provide the why. So if I'm telling, you know, to use your example, and I'll use this athlete and I hope he doesn't mind that I'm using it. You know, if you're hitting the pipe and you're cutting back to five, it's like, I'm going to tell, you know, Colton Lou, it's like, okay. And sometimes that's going to work, you know, in certain respects, you know, five is going to be the shot that's open, but like tactically let's explain why the shot to one is probably going to be more open. First of all, you're attacking to a setter or a right side, as opposed to, you know, a libero or, you know, a, a left side playing in position five. I'm like, but also like if you're hitting the, the, the back or the push pipe, you're kind of cutting back into the block. So it's like, we'll have that conversation as opposed to just like me yelling at Colton, like, Hey, hit to one, what are you doing? And you know, I, I, and like our coaching staff in, in general, like we want that conversation. Cause then I think once the guys understand the why they understand like the tactical or technical rationale behind any feedback or decision, then I think they can jump in and they can fully trust the decision where, you know, if I was just barking at them and I, you know, was closed minded, I didn't allow for the conversation Then I think that trust would just slowly erode. And again, because autonomy is such a big part of our training environment, they need to feel, or I want them to feel like they have a role in shaping our decisions, our tactical decisions, our technical decisions. Um, and that all comes from communication, but no, to, give a long story short here, fortunate that we, we, we have a lot of really nice guys in our gym and, you know, they're always open for the conversation as opposed to just telling me I'm wrong or telling me that I'm a moron. It, it's so great to hear the behind the scenes stuff. Cause obviously you're, you're a high level coach at a, at a top program. But when I was first getting into coaching as like a, a senior in high school, I used to think like, Oh, if you're on the national team, you must not deal with these problems. And now having been around the beach guys, like all of guys, 
you know, we, we try to make them wear heart rate monitors and do other things so we can add some data and really like monitor their training. And they're, they'll just look you dead in the eye like, how does this help me side out? So anyone who's thinking that like, oh, just because you coach at a high level, you don't have problems. No, I think every coach athlete relationship, there's going to be tough conversations. And it's cool to hear your process that you have expectations and you build trust and there's a foundation there because uh, I don't think it ever gets easier. Just like if you're coaching the Vancouver Canucks, there's going to be some donkeys on that team and you're going to have to have tough conversations probably. <laughs> and, and I think truthfully, like as you know, like you ascend to like a different coaching level or, or if you're an athlete that's playing at a higher level, like you are likely pretty confident in what got you there. So if you have someone that's giving you feedback, that's the opposite of what you think is correct. Like you should be free to have that conversation. And once you come to, you know, a mutual understanding or, you know, kind of a middle ground with a the decision, then I think both parties feel more comfortable. And, you know, it's funny that you use the, you know, the heart rate monitor example. That was one thing like in my first year, because so many of the guys were new to the program. Like we, we wear the, the vert devices, like the uh, accelerometer devices that count the, the jumps. Mm-hmm. And um, for, for that first like semester, semester and a bit, like we would have our guys wear them and you know, kept having to bark to guys to like remember to bring their vert bands and grab the devices and yada, yada, yada. And then eventually I just had an athlete that came up to me I think yeah, it must have been like a couple weeks into term two, and it was just like, "Hey, why do we wear these? <laughs> like, it's kind, it's it's kind of a pain in the ass. You know, it's not that big of a deal. But honestly, like, like what do we use this for? And I was like, "Oh, do you guys honestly not know? They're like, "No, like, n- no idea." <laughs> so I uh, just showed them my YTP, like my yearly training plan, and <laughs> just showed them. I'm like, "Hey, I, you know." jot down our our daily jumps every day and it is the basis of our periodization so if i feel like a tuesday we were supposed to jump x number of times you know collectively and individually and we went way over that then i'm going to adjust my periodization for like the rest of the week and probably the week after and they were just like oh okay that makes complete sense never had any issues with guys wearing verse for the rest of the year they just needed that why as opposed to like a coach barking at them being like, Hey, wear this, you know, little device on your, on your hip and wear a band. That's probably uncomfortable. Like while you get sweaty, it's like, once I give them the why they're like, Oh, okay, cool. That makes sense. This directly benefits me. So I'm going to make sure that I do this. Yeah. Again, not to like sound like the old guy, but I'm totally with you there. We're like growing up. I don't think I would ever have to be explained that stuff where even our guys, like the, the daily check-in and the daily check-out of like, was that practice, you know, average? Was it game intensity? Like, what was it? Some of them weren't doing it until they saw, I used Terry, uh, Carrie McDonald's template for the Excel sheet for the YTP and they see how much data goes into it and how much you're actually measuring. Like, what was the load of practice? Like, oh, so it's actually really important that I take, you know, the two minutes or 90 seconds for some of them to fill out the survey. I was like, actually, yeah, it would help me a lot. Thanks. So yeah, sharing information, sometimes the athletes, even though you don't want to like, show them everything i think a little bit of information sharing and like you said the trust it just once they know why or that the it helps they're, they're not afraid to do it but if it's a waste of time then they're not going to do it at least in my experience but um I, I am curious with this and everything you put into when you're the head coach and, and you're really building what you've got at ubc do you feel the freedom when you go to volleyball canada to you know sit down in a coach's meeting whether you're in charge or one of the coaches on staff to say Hey, everybody, these are the things I value. Like, is there an opportunity to bring this to VC or do you start having conversations with everybody else around their philosophy? Like when you work with with a a youth national team, 
are, are some of the unwavering pillars still joy and autonomy? Yeah, I've been so, so fortunate that, you know, in all the years, so this is my seventh year in a row working with the youth national team program. And I've been so fortunate to have worked with like really awesome coaches. And it's, you know, kind of, you know, expected that if I'm working on a youth national team coaching staff, I'm new good coaches. But when I say good, I mean like really open-minded, curious, like forward thinking coaches. So I know you've had a bunch of them on this podcast. So how you started this, you know, my, my introduction where like you're, you're nobody unless you've been on the pass and down this podcast, <laughs> like, you, you know, like right away my mind goes to the 2019 coaching staff. So Matt Harris, um, from Ryerson, he was the head coach. Ian Abbott was the assistant coach. I was the other. And then Jared Brown, uh, was kind of like team manager slash third assistant coach, uh, it was such an incredible environment to coach in because like Maddie, you know, for those who haven't met Matt Harris before, that guy is a rock star. He's a volleyball junkie. He knows everything and everyone. He's a volleyball encyclopedia. But his very first question to me when we started that, that summer, and that was the third summer that Matt and I had coached together. But that very first summer, he was just like, okay, like, what do you want to do? Like, what do you want to bring in? Like, what are some things that you would really like to see with this team? And at that time, like that was after my first year, I guess, at UBC. Um, and I had like really been sinking my teeth into external cues um, and understanding like if we were going to be teaching like technical um, like aspects with that youth national team, that we need to like use external cues. Um, so that's what I kind of told them. Like, hey, I'll, I'll be the guy that's like on top of this all summer. And then Ian who's, you know, talk about like, I, I've been talking about team culture for the majority of this conversation. Ian Abbott is a wizard when it comes to establishing like really high performance team culture. So then Ian was able to bring like his perspective and his experiences. And then JB, who's another volleyball encyclopedia, volleyball junkie, was able to bring in his perspective. So I was really fortunate to have Maddie as kind of a role model the last couple or a couple of years ago to understand of like, okay, when we're on the youth national team and we're with the staff, like we all understand that each other has, like we each have strengths. We have something that we can bring to the table. Now, my job now as the head coach this summer is how can I essentially be like the director of everybody's strengths? So rather than like, I, I'm, I, you know, I kind of said earlier, like I'm not ego driven when I coach, uh, so hopefully everyone who's coached me agrees with that, but uh, I just don't see any sense in it. I understand that I've got strengths, but I definitely understand that I have weaknesses. So what I would rather do is just heighten everybody's strengths as opposed to kind of be like the dictator within a coaching staff. So, um, I'm going to assume that this podcast is released in a couple of weeks from now. So I can talk about our youth national team coaching staff. Uh, we have absolute rock stars on this coaching staff. So, um, I feel like I'm breaking news to you, Josh. So hopefully we love breaking news maybe, on the show. It makes maybe, us official. Maybe, maybe we'll have to go back and cut this one out, but I hope not. So like our coaching staff this summer, so we're returning the the coaching staff from last summer. Um, Cause I just felt like it was important to reward the coaches that gave their time at the beginning of the pandemic to do a virtual program and sink hours and hours into that. So We've got Brock Daviduk, Matt Kruger, and then Jared Brown, you know, retained from last year. But then we added Dave Preston and Nate Groenveld. So Dave from McMaster and then Nate from from York. 
So within our gym, we're going to have four U sports head coaches, uh, Matt Kruger, who's got his master's in motor learning and JB who, you know, is truthfully, I have an immense amount of respect for JB and his, his coaching experience and his perspective and his outlook on player development. So I know that we have a collection of absolute rock stars who kind of like all within their own gyms are the man, like they're used to kind of being the ones to facilitate, you know, their training environments. So my job is going to be taking after the, the lead that Matt Harris set for me a couple summers ago. And like our first meeting is going to be like, okay, Brock, like, what do you want to do? Like Brock, what are you going to bring to the table? You know, Dave Preston, what are you going to bring to the table? Groenveld, Kruger, JB, like what are you guys going to do? And then I just get to have the, the best job, you know, in the summer of just like being the one to pull those strengths out of everybody. And I'm, I'm never going to be the guy to be like, Hey guys, this is my way or the highway. And if you don't like it, beat it. You know, I'll, in the same way that we have those conversations with athletes, I, I want those conversations with coaches. Like that's where the, the coach professional development happens is where you have like conflicting ideas or, you know, you have a blank whiteboard and you're trying to find a solution to a problem. Like that's where the youth national team to me has been so beneficial for my coaching career because I've just been around really, really incredible minds of the game in Canada, but I've been really fortunate that they're really open-minded people uh, and people who are just looking to get better and looking to like help develop other coaches. That's amazing. And yeah, one, thanks for sharing that. And two, congratulations for being a part of this program and just having another awesome role in our sport. It's great to see everything that you're up to and, and contributing to on a high level here. Uh, I feel like we could keep it going. Like you've already been pretty patient dealing with the time zone and we're already an hour and a half in. So I feel the need to call it, but to give you the open invitation that you're going to have to come back on because I'm sure you got a lot more stories. But uh, to close it out, one thing we're building into a tradition is obviously people just learned about your pathway and seeing that you're at the highest level. But volleyball people are hilarious and there's a lot of personalities in our in our sport. So you've told some great stories already, but I'm sure there's one more that you can maybe just give us a laugh before we let you go about some unique experience that volleyball's given you. So, so before I dig in, I'm going to preface and say that Jared Brown stole my story. So, because <laughs> this podcast, this podcast is going to come out after JB's, and without knowing what you guys talked about, JB is the world's greatest storyteller. So, I'm sure you guys had two hours of unbelievable storytelling. Absolutely. Uh, so, I was going to tell the Fort Lauderdale story because that was probably the most outrageous thing that's happened to me as a coach. But I've got one really, actually, I've got two quick ones that I'll share, and one I wasn't going to share. Um, like it didn't come to mind originally, but, uh, I'll pass along. And it really, in a funny way, this story has shaped my coaching career. So, you know, going back to, you know, I had alluded to that year at Thompson rivers, uh, where I was the interim head coach. And I mentioned that awesome weekend that we had against UBC early on and that, you know, we lost both games. The first one was like gut wrenching. It was a five setter. We played really well. And, um, Matt Kruger was my assistant coach and Matt was really good friends with Ian Perry, uh, you know, who I've mentioned already. And I knew Carrie, but we didn't really know each other that well. And we knew that UBC was going to be going back to Vancouver after our match on Saturday. And, you know, as is custom very, very often is that, you know, after Saturday games, typically you'll go out for some drinks with the opposing coaches, especially if you have a relationship with them. So, uh, Kruger and I were, we were living together at the time. So we got home from the game, both just so dejected, so disappointed that we had just lost a game 
against UBC. We, we were early on in the season, really felt like we were doing some awesome things. And he gets a text from Ian Perry, and Ian's kind of asking him, like, hey, do you guys want to go grab some dinner, like grab some appies and, and some drinks? So we're, I just like so vividly remember this. We're sitting in the kitchen, and Kruger just looks up, to, looks up at me, and I'm like, he's, hey, man, like, do you want to go? Do you want to meet up with these guys? And my initial reaction, I'm sure you can imagine, and I told you I wasn't going to cuss on, on, the, on the podcast. <laughs> so you can imagine what the first words were that came out of my mouth. <laughs> And then uh, I think I just went upstairs, showered, and then came back down. And I was like, hey, you know, Carrie seems like a good dude. I know you're a good friends with with Ian. Like, sure, let's just go do it. I could definitely use a drink right now, and I'm pretty hungry. So, like, let's just go meet up with them. And, uh, yeah, it ended up being, like, a really awesome conversation. Like, again, I, I've already said Carrie's is not an, an ego-driven coach. So, if anything, like, the entire conversation was – him complimenting us on like what we were doing. He was like, Hey, like you guys are really young. You guys are starting to figure things out, but it's really obvious to everybody else in this league, like what you guys are doing. So even though these guys are still like developing, like developing their skills, it's clear that like the systems that you have in play are, you know, moving you guys forward. So like, that was great. Um, but the reason that I'm telling this story is that, you know, months later when Carrie, was named the head coach of the youth national team, he asked me to be his assistant coach. And I can almost guarantee that I would not have received that call if Carrie and I did not have, you know, a two plus hour conversation after that really gut wrenching loss on the Friday night, because we didn't really have much of a relationship before that. And if I didn't coach with Carrie with that youth national team, my name probably isn't one that comes to mind when he's thinking of coaches to take over his spot at UBC. So when people tend to ask me like how I wound up at UBC, like the really short, short version of the story is that I decided to go out for beer and some, some food with a coach after I just lost a five setter. And that really like just showing, I don't even want to call it humility. I think I was honestly just acting out of self-interest for a drink and some food. But, you know, being willing to to meet up with the coach that just just beat our team uh, really ended up opening up incredible doors for me and kind of landed me now here at UBC and in Vancouver. That That's amazing. I mean, you keep kind of downplaying it a little bit, but at the end of the day, like it, it's not that hard to be a good guy. And it seems like you're a good guy in all situations. So it just makes you an easy guy to root for. So. Yeah, you keep falling into these situations, but I still think you, you've earned them and you're having success in everyone you seem to find. So, <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. Uh, that's really kind. The The story that I was going to tell, and this one will be much shorter, because uh, once JB's told my story, I was like, okay, what's something that I've done that you know nobody has probably done within volleyball? So when I was in grade 11 at uh, Catholic Central High School in Lethbridge, um, we went on a, a trip to New Zealand like a volleyball trip to New Zealand because uh, the coach the year before, he was taking like a one-year sabbatical to go teach in New Zealand. So he orchestrated this trip. So we kind of combined our senior and JV uh, high school teams. And we just had like 20 guys go to this tour, this volleyball tour in New Zealand. And our very first game, we were playing at this um, this boys school. And it was like a pretty, it was like a half decent school. Like it wasn't like a really you know, high class private school, but it was kind of like, you know, like a middle class private school. And, uh, you know, they 
had, I think like eight or 10 guys on the team. Like they didn't seem super impressive. And, uh, the school director comes up to us right after warm up. Like we finished our attack warm up and all that. And he's like, Hey, um, you know, as you guys probably know, like it's traditional for New Zealand athletes to do the haka before, you know, competition. Like, do you guys mind if we do that? Like, of course we're going to say yes. So, so then all of a sudden, all like 250 students that were in the stands, like these, this like boys private school, every single one of them comes on the court and on their half of the net, they perform the haka. And we're, <laughs> we're sitting there as like a bunch of, you know, grade like 10 to 12 guys just sitting there like staring to be like, oh my, like what is happening I don't remember the scores because I'm pretty sure I blacked out for about two hours. We got crushed by that team because we were so unbelievably intimidated uh, by these guys. Like some of them, you know, were like traditional Maori. Like some of them were just, you know, like, uh, you know, a couple of like regular dudes. Uh, But it was so clear that they were so passionate about their culture. And it was so in our face in the most like competitive, like beautiful, like competitive way they absolutely torched us. And I wouldn't say they were like really skilled. Like New Zealand isn't, you know, historically known for being an awesome volleyball nation, uh, but they absolutely crushed us. And kind of like a full side story, there was this, he was obviously like their like big gun, like their, their best player. He looked physically really impressive. Like he was built like a linebacker. He looked like he probably played on the All Blacks afterwards. Um, and he was pretty good in the game, but not like really impressive. And then after the game, whatever, we talked to some of them, we're like stretching or whatever. It's like getting ready to go. And this guy took off his shoes and started playing. Like he just had like buddies setting him, you know, like meter balls or 53s and some left side balls. And all of a sudden became like a completely different player. Like he, he was bouncing balls into the roof. Like he was hitting balls like, cross court a meter like bouncing it off the sidewall because apparently wearing shoes were like inhibiting his abilities <laughs> so not only were we unbelievably intimidated after the haka but luckily we didn't have to play that team again because if that guy would have shown up without shoes i guarantee he would have put up like 30 kills on us and just walked away like it was no big deal <laughs> that, that's two haka stories we've had on the show it, it was funny when we had jason lockhead on the show they used to ask him to do it before matches on the world tour. And he's just like, no, are you guys crazy? Like I would have no energy to play the game. So to hear you describe it, like I think seeing it on YouTube or seeing on TV, like it's obviously intense, but like the amount of energy and intensity they bring in person, like that's gotta be a sight to see. Well, especially because there was like 250 of them. (laughs) Like if it was, if it was just the team, like again, I think they had 10 players. If that, if it was just those 10 guys and it's like, okay, this is cool. But they had every student in the school come down and they just like filled their half of the court. And like the reason why I was describing that it was kind of like a like a middle class private school is that this gym wasn't that big. Like it was kind of your average high school gym, like a little rundown, you know, could maybe fit two volleyball courts without any serving room. But they jam packed. Yeah, like around 250 guys performing the haka. And it was uh, by far the most intimidating thing that I've ever witnessed in person. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Like I, I think I, I was semi familiar with all the things that you've achieved and, and all the places you've coached, but I was, I was way off. So I'm glad you could fill in some gaps and tell some stories and really kind of showcase the journey you've been through. Cause uh, 
you know, you're, you're definitely not an overnight success. You've put in some time and you've had success at all the levels and it's great to see what you're doing now. But yeah, yeah, I was way off. I had no idea all the stops you had in between and everything you've done. So, so thanks for sharing all that you did and for, for giving us your time today. Yeah, you know, no problem. It's, it's tough to keep track how many times that I moved back and forth between Lethbridge and Kamloops, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, really appreciate you having me on and all the, the kind words. And honestly, I'm not just saying this to sound like a nice guy. Uh, just really appreciate what you do. Uh, like what you guys do with your, your podcast in showcasing different coaches and athletes in Canada. Uh, I think you guys do an awesome job and, you know, I wasn't just saying this to be a guest on the podcast, but I, I listen to like really everyone that you guys do. And I think you guys do a fantastic job. Awesome, man. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that.